Thank you, worship team. Is this on? This new mic is on? All right, wonderful. If there's any problems with a new mic, don't worry. We're not starting a new boy band where this is the new trend. Neither, this is for Daniel Homequest, and we're testing it out this week. So if there's anything wrong with it, don't blame the sound guy. Blame Jason. But it is good to be with you in the house of the Lord here this morning and good to be preaching from God's word with you as well. As many of you probably know, I went, before I was here in New Jersey, I attended Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. You are probably familiar with it because it was named after a man called D.L. Moody. Big surprise there with the name. But I was there, and um, Moody was a man who was used mightily of God in the 1800s as a pastor and as an evangelist. And he brought many, many people, through the Lord's work through him, many people came to faith during the course of his lifetime. And also throughout his time in life, he organized several different pastors' conferences to encourage and equip pastors pastors as they continue to do the work of the ministry in their day. And in one particular conference he hosted in Northfield, Massachusetts, he had many people come over from Europe, all these pastors coming over from Europe to this pastors' conference, which is a good thing. But one night, Moody was walking the, the halls where all the men were staying, and he noticed something peculiar. There were all these little pairs of shoes outside the doors of the rooms. And he thought, well, that's interesting. And then he remembered a cultural norm in Europe at the time. That if you wanted to have your shoes cleaned and polished for you at the hotel, you just put them outside your door and they would be cleaned and polished by the next morning. So you could just slip into them and go about your day. Now, Moody realized that this was America. And we didn't have hall servants like they did in Europe. And so because of that, he was about to make a major cultural faux pas. And not wanting to embarrass himself and also distract and basically make all these men mad, he wanted to try to do something about it. So he went to some of the different ministerial students that he had, and he tried to compel them, come help me as we try to be able to clean and shine these shoes. You can imagine the response, though. A bunch of young people wanting to do work that they don't feel like they're entitled to. No. They started making excuses. No, I don't feel like doing that. Sorry, can't make it. And so what did D.L. Moody do? He went back to the hall. He picked up all the pairs of shoes. He brought them to his room and proceeded to clean and polish each and every shoe. The man in charge of the conference, the one who would by all means be the head honcho, was doing the lowest job on the totem pole, the job of a menial servant. That's an example of selfless humility. And I share that with you this morning because the passage of scripture that we're gonna be taking a look at this morning in Philippians chapter two also deals with selfless humility, which is the title of our sermon this morning, as you can see on the slide behind me. Live worthily in unity by walking in selfless humility. Live worthily in unity by walking in selfless humility. Now, as you might have noticed, I've been going through the book of Philippians whenever I get a chance to preach, so that way you don't get too much at one time. But this morning, we are going to be looking at two uh, points this morning. I'm just going to give you a preview of where we're going, and then we'll get into the message this morning. Our first point that we're going to uncover is this, that selfless humility should be the goal of every Christian. And secondly, that selfless humility was modeled in Christ. And if you miss those, don't worry. That's a preview. We're going to get ready to dive into our text. But before we do, I invite you to pray with me and for me as we examine God's word here this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord, so much for your word. God, we thank you that when we come to your word, it's not just a large affirmation of everything that we are doing perfectly, but rather you give us things in scripture that we can grow and we can work on because we are still a work in progress. But Lord, we thank you that you are at work in us. We thank you that you are someone, Lord, who exemplified selfless humility. 
And I pray that you would allow us to grow in our study of it here this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Now, if you remember from our previous time in the book of Philippians, chapter 1 dealt with Paul's circumstances and the advance of the gospel. And then at the, at the end of chapter 1, he tells the Philippians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that's the macro theme that, that goes throughout the end of chapter 1 and the majority of chapter 2. So that's the repeating uh, titles for these sermons. But join me with me, if you will, in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. The word of God says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now as I said we have two main points from this text this morning and again the first one is this main point number one selfless humility should be the goal of every Christian. Selfless humility should be the goal of every Christian. Christian. This comes from the first four verses of our passage this morning. And oftentimes when I come to a passage of scripture, I don't know what it means when I first study it. Anybody else been there before? Or does everybody fully understand God's word whenever you're a Christian? But oftentimes when I first come to study this section of scripture, I was really confused by what was going on. Because Paul has all these different points that he seems to make, and they seemed random at the time, but there is a method to his madness. He's asking all these questions, but assuming that they are true and building upon each one. And that's based on the majority of verse 1 in our text, where he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, but that should allow us to pause and ask ourselves the question, genuinely, is there any encouragement in Christ? Amen, there is. There is encouragement from Christ from the fact that we are no longer separated from God because of our sins, but rather we have been saved by the blood of Jesus. That we are no longer walking according to our own wisdom in this world, but rather we are able to be brought near by the blood of the Lamb. And that in this world where there is so much chaos and craziness happening, and it's not just today, it has been happening for over two millennia, that we have a hope because our hope is grounded in Christ. There is encouragement in Jesus Christ. But Paul doesn't just stop there. He says, if there is any comfort from love, or some translations say any comfort from his love, and that should allow us to pause again and say, ask the question, is there comfort from his love? And I would say, agree with you, Joan, there's true. There is comfort in the love of God because we live in a world where love can be taken to mean so many different things. Most of the time when people talk about love and they want to understand its meaning, they go back to the Greek and they look at the four words for love. But love can mean other things in our modern culture. It can mean an emotion. It can mean an action. It can mean infatuation. It can mean tolerance. It can mean lust. It can mean any number of things in our modern world. So it begs the question, 
is there any comfort in the love that God gives? And I would say there is. Because the love that God gives to us is not predicated on anything that you or I have done in our lifetime. It's not based on how holy you are, how often you've been to church, or how well you did in quiz team. Rather, it is based on God's love for us, which is unconditional. So much so that when we were enemies of God, he came into the world and died on the cross because of his love for us. And if that is what love is embodied in the character of God, there is comfort in that love, I believe. But not only that, but Paul continues on saying, is there any participation or fellowship in the Spirit? And so again, is there any? Because as believers, a lot of times we are blessed by community and by fellowship, but one of the things that you and I have as believers in Jesus Christ is that we are united together, not based on where we're from, on our Myers-Briggs personality, or what you look like, or your, your preference, and any number of other things. But rather, our connection to each other is based on our faith in Jesus Christ, because when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, something incredible happens. God sends the Spirit of God's Spirit to indwell and to live inside of us so that what prior we were not able to do if we were trying to live for God based on our own strength and we were failing time and again and again, God gives us the Holy Spirit to enable us for godly living instead of looking down on us from heaven and saying, try harder, you're not good enough. God gives us the Holy Spirit and we have fellowship with God, but also with each other, meaning that we can travel to any other genuine church in the entire world. And we might not know somebody or understand where they're from or their culture or the language maybe even that they speak, but we have a bond with them because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, because we have the Holy Spirit living within us. And the last phrase that Paul uses in verse one asking, asks us this question. Is there any affection and sympathy? Other verses translate it in different ways, but this refers to having your heart go out to somebody and also sympathy conveying an idea of mercy. As believers in Jesus Christ, as we grow and as we fellowship with one another, there should be that genuine love and care for each other as well as a mercy with each other because we're all still a work in progress, are we not? We are. He's not done with us, Jerry Kafazi. You are absolutely correct. But as we walk through all these truths, you might be saying, okay, young preacher, all right, there's a bunch of interesting facts. Why does Paul use that? What's the big idea that he's trying to get at? Well, when I was studying this, I realized that it seems like each one of these are a progression that Paul builds upon so that one is the foundation for the next and the next and the next. And I looked back in my life, in my journey of faith, and realized that God was at work in each one of these areas at different times. Many of you might have grown up in the church and if you did, many of you might have come to faith at a young age like I did. And in that moment, we probably didn't understand the totality of the gospel, but we did understand the basic truth that God loved us and died on the cross for our sins. And in that moment, whether we fully understand it, all the Bible at that time or not, we had encouragement from being in Christ. And I kid you not, no sooner did I put my faith in Christ than did doubt rear its ugly head. And the doubt in my heart was, did it work? Am I saved, or am I going to lose it the moment that I screw up or do something wrong in my life? Little young Jason, and that was a question that was on my heart. It might have been on your heart as well. But what brought me comfort in that moment was the love of God. 
a godly man who was the pastor of our children's ministry, shared with me the verse from the end of the chapter 8 of Romans, speaking about how God's love is not going to be, we're not going to be separated from the love of God by anything in this world. And because of that, I had comfort. And I was able to know that though I was faithless at times, God was faithful. And that love, in its truest sense, in its purest sense, was a comfort to my soul because I was no longer trying to earn God's love, but he had given it to me freely. But as we grow in our faith, we probably hopefully have fellowship in, with others in the, in the spirit. We are able to interact with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And I didn't really experience real godly fellowship until I was in high school, even though I grew up in a Christian context and my parents were good Christians and all that. But I never experienced it into high school when I saw other kids who said, let's try to reach our school for Jesus. And I was the good little Christian kid, and I looked at them wondering, why? Why not just have your faith in your cute little box, and you leave it there, and you pull it out on Sunday and show it to everybody, here's my wonderful little faith, and then you put it back for the rest of the week. But these people were excited to get in God's word. They were excited to pray for each other. They were excited to fight sin. They were excited to be able to share the good news of Jesus with others. And in that moment, I started to be able to grow in my faith, and I experienced godly Christian fellowship in that moment. There was a fellowship of what the Spirit was doing in that moment to try to reach our school for Christ. And that last phrase from verse 1, affection and sympathy, one way that I've been blessed, and probably many of you have been blessed as well, is if you travel to other places around the world and you fellowship with believers there. You might not know them, you might have not just met them over coffee or in Kaga, but in that moment, you're able to connect with them because you're a brother and sister in, in Christ. And because of that, there is an affection and care for each other, and there is also a sympathy and a mercy with each other because that we understand that we're all a work in progress in this whole thing. But Paul is, as I said, building on all of these things towards a point. How many of you like roller coasters this year? Yeah, a lot of you? Okay, a lot of you like roller coasters, all right. I mean, didn't mean to say this year, but just in general. But I, I say that because the fact, have you ever been on a roller coaster where it has that chain that carries you up the hill and you get towards the top, you know? In that moment, you're kind of getting nervous and wondering, oh no, am I ready? Do I really want to go on this ride? But it's similar to our passage here this morning because verses one and two are kind of like that chain hill building up and verse three is the point that point that's the top of the hill. And everything past verse 3 comes from it, and everything prior to it builds up towards it. So verse 3 is a center. But verse 2 makes it clear because it says this. Paul says this. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Notice there in four ways Paul is saying be unified, be unified, be unified, be unified on this one thing. And so as we're reading, we probably are wondering, what is it, Paul? What's the thing that you're building towards? Come on, tell us already. And the answer comes in verse 3. Verse 3, where Paul says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And notice that Paul says, complete my joy meaning that he has great delight in the Philippian church. If you read this book, it's, some people call it his ode to joy because there's so much joy in his relationship with the Philippians. But this one thing that if the Philippians were to perfect, it would literally complete his joy in them. That would be the thing that would bring them so much joy. And it includes two parts. It includes what they should not be doing and also what they should be doing. Because Christianity is not just a long list of rules that we try to follow and not do. 
It's also us seeking God mainly and trying to follow after him. But look with me at the words that Paul uses in verse 3. He, sa- he uses the word selfish ambition. And this word in the Greek implies a sense of rivalry. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 17, some were preaching Christ out of rivalry, trying to basically compete with each other. So if I were preaching with rivalry this morning, my goal would be to outdo any other preacher here in the pulpit, rather than preaching to God's glory and your edification. And Paul is saying, don't do anything in life, not just preaching, but anything in life from a selfish ambition to compete with other Christians because we're in the same race going towards the same goal, not looking to try to make each other stumble as we pursue Christ. But he also uses another word. He uses the word conceit, or some of your translations might say vain conceit. When I looked at that word, I was like, what is he really saying there? And the word that he is referring to there refers to a sense of foundationless or baseless pride. It means that we're puffed up with a pride, but it's not grounded in anything. We're full of ourselves, but for no reason other than we're full of ourselves. And that's what Paul is wanting us to be able to guard against in our lives. But again, that's what Paul is saying not to do. But by contrast, the thing that we should be seeking to do comes from the second half of the verse, where he says, in humility, in a spirit of humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this is something, again, where Paul says this would complete his joy. If you're a young parent today, maybe something that would complete your joy is if you told your kids go to bed and they just went to their room, put their head on the pillow, and went to sleep. That might complete your joy. Or if you are an educator or a student here today, you might say, you know what would complete my joy? If there was no more Zoom meetings for the rest of this year, that would complete my joy. I would have no more trouble with it. But for Paul, he is saying what would complete his joy is for the Philippians to not do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, counting them as more important than yourselves. And this is interesting because the way that the Apostle Paul in other letters talks about the church, he refers to it in several different metaphors, as well as throughout the New Testament. It refers to the church as a building in some instances, or a flock of sheep, or a human body, or other metaphors as well. But one thing that is integral through all these metaphors is the idea of unity. Take the example of the human body for a second. All of the different parts of our anatomy, limbs, eyes, cardiovascular system, nervous system, it works together for a singular purpose. You don't have one part of your body that's rebelling against the other. If you tried to walk and your right foot said, I'm going to start walking, and the left foot said, no, we're not going to do that, you wouldn't be able to take a single step forward because you'd do this and then immediately fall. Unity is a key principle. That goes into the flock, like those who wander off. We need to be united together. But also when it comes to the building, let each one take care how he builds on the foundation as well. And this is something that is incredibly important for us as believers because this point that Paul is trying to encourage the Philippians then and us and all churches now is the idea of not living selfishly but rather living in selfless humility. And it's easier said than done. It's so easy to say. It's hard to live out. You know, I've mentioned this before in other sermons, but I'll mention it again. One of Burger King's old slogans was, have it your way. Brilliant marketing. Because that appeals to our inner desire to have things our way. Because if we're really honest with ourselves, we like to have things our way. 
not just food, but preferences in life. When we come to our day, many of us, we want to be able to do things our way. And I'm talking about we, not just you, myself included. All of us, we are hardwired for doing things our way. But as believers, our goal should instead be to have things his way, referring to Christ, rather than having things our way. And that's why here at Calvary, we strive to honor Jesus first in our priorities, the greater good second, and our personal preference last. And I say strive because, again, we're all a work in progress. Not every decision that we're going to make throughout the entire history of the church is going to be absolutely flawless and perfect. But that's true in our lives as well. And we're striving to the best of our ability by God's grace, with the help of your prayers, and by our ability to live selflessly for Christ and put his priority first above all things, the greater good second, and our personal preference last. And so what does all this mean for us today? We've walked through a lot of different things for this point, but I encourage you to think about this one question. And I'm, and I'm encouraged because I think many of you already do. But how will this affect others? How will this affect others? I'm letting, I'm letting the this in that question be general, but when it comes to our living, are we asking ourselves that question? Are we asking ourselves that question when it comes to how we spend our time with God or how we spend our time with our family, how we interact with the church or how we interact with other brothers and sisters in Christ? How will what I do here affect others? Because we don't need to be reminded of the other question. How will this affect me? We all know that. That's something that our sinful heart constantly asks. What's difficult to ask is how will this affect others? And that's something that we should all remember as we seek to grow in Christ. And so I encourage you as well, as we seek to live in adherence to this principle here in the text, be in prayer as well for those who are in leadership at your church, whether that's the elders or Daniel Holmquist, because it's not easy to be able to live this out. Believe me, preaching on selfless humility is not the easiest thing to be able to do. It's not one of the top things that you say, that sounds like an easy thing to preach on on Sunday morning. That's why I keep saying that we're all a work in progress. But please be in prayer for Tom, for the elders, for Daniel, because it's not easy. But churches that focus on Christ above our personal preferences thrive. And individuals who focus on Christ above our personal preferences thrive as well. That's why Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone should come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And yet, this selfless humility as the goal of every Christian that we are seeking to grow into as we continue to mature towards Jesus is not the only point on this sermon. There's a second one here this morning that really brings color to the text. And that is main point two in our outline this morning. Our second main point is this. Selfless humility was modeled in Christ. Selfless humility was modeled in Christ. Look with me at verse five through 11. It says, have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I'll pause there just for a second. Notice something interesting there. He says, have this mindset among yourself. But you might be saying, well, what mindset he's talking about? He's referring back to verse three. Remember the whole roller coaster analogy. 
Verse 3 is the center of this entire passage. That's what everything is building off of. And so he's sending, saying, remember this mindset to do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's what he is referring to in terms of mindset. But then he says something extremely, extremely important. Have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And this is monumentally important for us in the church because the only way that we will accomplish this mindset is by God's grace and by being in Jesus Christ. Again, that's why I mentioned it earlier. Christianity is not just a long list of rules that we seek to follow to be a good legalist, but rather us seeking to follow God by the Holy Spirit enabling us to live in obedience to him. Because again, we've all tried to follow God's list of rules. You ever read the Old Testament and all the commandments are, that are in there? God's word says that the sum of his word is truth and his standard for morality is perfection and following all those commandments. And when it comes to us, if we just look at the bare minimum, the 10 commandments, each and every one of us, myself included, will fall short. And that's why he says here, this mindset is yours in Christ Jesus because without Christ at work in us, this is not possible. It's not possible for us to live in selfless humility and have that attitude among ourselves if we are not a believer in Jesus Christ. And many of us are here today as believers in Jesus Christ, but perhaps there are some who aren't or some that are watching online. But I encourage you, maybe you have grown up in the church or you've been familiar with the Bible. You know what you should do and what you shouldn't do, but you're familiar with the things of the church, but you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is the foundational thing that we must ask ourselves as it comes to living out in application to the scriptures. If we try to look at the Bible and follow it according to our own strength, we will fail time and again. But if we come to Jesus saying, Lord, would you forgive me of my sins and would you be the Lord of my life because I can't do it on my own strength? Only God, by your grace. And he's able and willing to help us. And so I encourage you, if you're at home as well or watching online, if you don't know Jesus Christ, I encourage you to reach out to myself or reach out to Wayne or reach out to anybody in the office. We'd love to tell you more about Jesus. And if you're here today even and you've grown up in the church and you're familiar with religion but you don't know Jesus, can we introduce you to him? Because he is what it's all about. He is the one that is the game changer. He is the one that enables us to live for God and rather than ourselves. And yet this verse or this section of scripture doesn't just stop there as well. Verse six continues on saying this, who, referring to Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now this is where the text starts to get really technical. The who there, again, refers to Christ, but the form there can refer to many different things. Again, you can say form and it can refer to the outward appearance of something or it can refer to the internal uh, appearance of something. And the word for form here in the Greek is the Greek word morphe, which refers to the essential form of something that never alters. You see, Jesus wasn't not God and then all of a sudden he became God. Or he wasn't God in heaven and then came to earth and ceased to be God. But he, being in the essential form God, always was, always will be. But that's why it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And you might be saying, well, what does that phrase mean? That phrase refers to using his position with God for his own advantage. This is something that we can do in different situations in our life. But what this is referring to is that Christ did not use his power and his deity for his own advantage. Think back to the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. What's one of the ways 
that Satan tempted Jesus when he was hungry. Turn the stones into bread, yeah. Now why would that be a temptation, right? Is that something that I should go to the youth group and say, hey guys, the temptation we're talking about is a tough one this week. Don't eat bread. Is that a correct application of scripture? No, it's not. It is not. So what was Satan getting at in that? He was trying to tempt Jesus to instead of seeking God's provision and trusting in him and doing the Father's will to seek his own agenda and provide for himself rather than submitting to God's will. That's why it says in John chapter 6, verse 38, I have come down from heaven, Jesus speaking, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Do you see the connection to our passage? That's the connection that he's talking about. Not my will, but thy will. Jesus who embodied what it means to do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than himself. Even when he had been fasting in the wilderness for many days and he was starving, he in that moment had the power to turn those stones into loaves and he chose instead to rely on God and his provision for him him in that moment. But the But this text continues on to verse 7 where it says this, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. Now here is where so many people get confused, and it's one of the probably most difficult passages to preach on in the entire book of Philippians, and it's what that word emptied means. Because some people think, well, that word empties must refer to his glory, that God gave up his glory when he came to earth. But if that's the case, there's a problem because when Jesus went on to a mountain with his disciples, he was transfigured before them. You remember that in Matthew chapter 17? And he revealed his glory to them. And so there's a problem with that way of thinking because if Jesus gave up his glory to come to earth, how did he reveal it when he was there? So he didn't give up his glory. And some people say, well, maybe he gave up his divine attributes. You know, Jesus wasn't really all powerful when he was here on earth. But that doesn't seem to make sense. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, which says this, For in him, referring to Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It doesn't make much sense for the scripture to say that if Jesus wasn't the fullness of God. If he was was only mostly God or partially God, it doesn't make sense for him to be the fullness of God pleasing to dwell in a human body. And that's what Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 says. And so what Jesus did according to this verse, is better translated, I think, in the NIV 84, which says this, but made himself nothing. Jesus made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant. So Jesus, for all of eternity, is fully God. And when he came into this world, he put on human flesh. He did not empty himself of anything. He emptied himself into humanity and put on human flesh. And that is important because that affects so many other aspects of theology that we're not going to get into this morning. But this refers to Jesus making himself nothing rather than seeking his own desire. And if this sounds just big and theological and kind of far off, remember what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did Jesus pray earnestly with with, uh, sweat droplets of blood coming down his face? Not my will, but your will. But before that, he also said, if there's any way possible, take this cup from me. Because any sane person does not want to go and be crucified. But then he said correctly what, he, what Joe just said. Not my will, but thy will be done. 
Because what Jesus did at the cross is he took on human flesh, but he also took on all of our sins and died for them. And that was extremely, extremely humbling for him. Because he is the one who is the king of the universe. He is the one that deserves all glory and praise. And he's the one that we sing all about every single Sunday because he is the God of the universe and he deserves all glory and honor and praise. And yet compared to him, we are so insignificant. Not without value in his eyes, but by comparison, insignificant. In the same way, if you look at an anthill, those ants are quite insignificant to you. If they're infesting your home, they're even less significant because you're going to try to get rid of them as soon as possible with Terminex or something. But Jesus is so much higher than we are. We are so insignificant compared to him. And for him to come and put on human flesh and die on the cross was a supreme act of humility. And we walk through that again so easily sometimes because we forget about the fact that how does somebody die when they're on the cross? by suffocation. Jesus, after having his body ripped apart so that his muscles and his sinews were probably exposed, blood draining down his back, after carrying a cross up a hill to his own point of execution, was nailed in his hands and in his feet to a cross where he would have to pull himself up by those points, resting on nerve endings in excruciating pain, and all the time being able, if he wanted to, to not have to go through it. And yet he chose to because he was submitting himself to the Father's will instead of his own will at the time. And what was the result of all this? Verse 9 continues throughout the rest of the passage and says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Though Jesus humbled himself at the cross and in the incarnation, God chose to highly exalt him because of that. Now think of Jesus at the cross and compare that to D.L. Moody. Who was more humble, would you say? What do you think? All right, we'll do a little call and response. How many of you think D.L. Moody was more humble than God? Be careful if you raise your hand on this one. It's obvious Christ was more humble. Christ acted in more selfless humility all the more. And so you might be asking, why do you bring this up, Jason? Why are you stressing this point? Or why does Paul pause in this text where he tells them, don't do anything from a selfishness and goes into this maybe rabbit trail on Christ. Why does he do that? And I believe it's because he anticipates our sinful response. Because my sinful response, I'll say, when I hear somebody saying, you know what, why don't, Jason, you should act in more selfless humility. My reaction probably in my heart, I might not show it, would kind of be to cross my arms and say, all right, fine, yeah, I'll act in selfless humility. That sounds easy. Because we're people and we don't like to be changed. And yet what Paul is doing is he is illustrating through what Christ did how great a work Christ did and how little we are doing by comparison. God is not asking most of us to actually and physically be crucified like Christ was. It's much less by comparison. You know, when I was a kid living in Arkansas, I used to complain about doing some chores. I don't know, maybe you have some sinful children that can relate. But I didn't like to do all my chores, and every once in a while I didn't like them. And I complained to my dad one time about taking out the trash. I was going through the house, taking all the different pieces of garbage, about to put them in the garbage can and roll it out to the street for the next day. 
And I remember complaining about it, and I remember my dad stopped me. And he said, okay, he listened for a little bit, and then he said, all right, how about we trade? And I said, what? He said, why don't we trade chores? Everything I do as a father for the family for everything you do. Then dad started to walk through everything that he did for the family, all the chores that he had to do, all the work that he did, everything that he did, and I sat there sheepishly and ashamedly because I was understanding what he was saying. Because he didn't have to yell and scream at me to make a point, but his point was clearly implied. Jason, I'm not asking you to do that much, so don't pout about it, and just do it. Just take out the trash. It's not that hard. And he was loving in that. But I believe that Paul is doing a similar thing to the Philippians, because if he just told them, live in selfless humility, they might say, okay, yeah, great, that's a good idea, Paul. But if he says, by comparison, look at what Christ did for us and what he's asking us to do, it hits us here a lot deeper than just up here. And that's something that applies to all of us here today because not looking to our own interests only but to the interests of others is not something that comes natural to us. Again, as I mentioned, it's something that God has to do and to be at work in our hearts for it to be accomplished. But this is because also we are so backwards as a culture in terms of our thinking. Because does the culture think that saying yes to self or no to self is better? Denying ourselves? or gratifying yourself is better? Which do you think the culture thinks is better? Pro- probably saying yes to ourselves, right? Probably indulging ourselves, telling ourselves that we can treat ourselves. You can do what you want. That's what the culture tells us is okay. And yet, if you don't hear anything else that I hear for the entire sermon, I encourage you, zone in now and write down this verse. Zone in now and write down this verse. Acts chapter twenty. Verse 35. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. It's an interesting verse because it's something that Jesus said that's not recorded in the Gospels, but it's recorded in Acts. Acts chapter 20, verse 35 says this Remember the words of our Lord Jesus and how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That's a profound truth. And it's something that we often, if you grew up in a Christian house, you probably heard it around Christmas time when you didn't want to give presents to other people. That was me, again, as a sinful child. I had lots of those uh, illustrations. But I didn't want to give gifts to others. My parents would quote that verse. But it never really sank in that what God is saying in this passage of Scripture, that it is better for us to be able to give than to receive, meaning that to seek the good of others, to be selfless and to look to their good is far better by comparison than seeking our own gains in our lives. And this is an inconvenient truth when it comes to us as humanity because as people, all people, we are hardwired to seek our own self and our own desires. And I want to prove it to you by taking you to one other passage of Scripture Proverbs 27.20. I encourage you, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. Proverbs 27.20. Proverbs 27, verse 20, says this. Sheol and Abaddon, the realms of the dead, are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. Did you catch the second part of it? And never satisfied are the eyes of man. What's the implication of that for us? 
It's not just talking about men as the male gender, but it's referring to mankind, all of mankind. For all of us, our eyes are not satisfied, meaning that we constantly want more. We constantly are continually seeking more, meaning that we cannot get so much that we are satisfied that we stop seeking more. Think about it when it comes to things that we seek in life, like money. How much is ever enough? Once we get whatever amount we think is enough, we constantly want more. And we constantly pursue more and more. And that's why this idea that it's more blessed to give than to receive is so backwards for our culture because we have been hardwired that to seek our own good is the greatest good that we can do. But it is an inconvenient lie because we will never be satisfied if we live for our own satisfaction apart from God. There will be no satisfaction for us. And so that's why what Paul is calling us to do is not something that is to be viewed as, oh, it's not something that we actually want to do, but what we should do. That's our natural response. That's my natural response. But in reality, he is instructing us to do something that is better for us for all time. And if you're like, well, I don't know about this, Jason. You're making a big kind of pivot from this one verse. Look at the book of Ecclesiastes. We mentioned it a few Sundays ago. We preached through it a few weeks ago. The book is written by Solomon, the most wealthy man in all of, of Israelite history in terms of the kings there, and the wisest man by any means. He was somebody who was able to create great works of building and had 900 wives and concubines. And if you look at all the areas of life that we look for satisfaction in, Solomon had far more than we ever will. And so if we take this idea that constantly getting more will bring us satisfaction, look at the life of Solomon. He had so much gold at his time, more than any other king in Israelite history, but did it satisfy him? No. It brought him misery. And yet we live in a world where we think that if we get enough money, things will go well, forgetting that godliness with contentment is great gain. Or for many young people today, we look at sexuality as the zenith of humanity. That's the best thing that we can experience. And Solomon had 900 wives and concubines. And was he satisfied? No, not only that, they also turned his heart away from God because we can never do what we want enough times to where we will be satisfied if it is outside of being satisfied in God. And Solomon also did great works. He did great building works. He created massive palaces and he created the the temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. So much so, it was so wonderful that when they built this temple years later in the time after the exile, that people were weeping by comparison because the temple of Solomon was so great. And Solomon said that even those massive works that outlived his lifetime were empty if we put our trust in them as our ultimate hope because they do not go with us from this world and they will not bring satisfaction. And even wisdom, Solomon being the wisest man in all of canon history, wiser than any of us ever will be, wiser than myself, wiser than Sean, wiser than Jim, wiser than Daniel, wiser than anybody else, thinking that if we have enough smarts, that will bring us satisfaction. And yet Solomon saw his life as empty if he pursued wisdom as an end of itself apart from God. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, he writes this, fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. When we look at this principle and we put it to the test, it is inconvenient but true that we will never be satisfied if we live for ourselves. And the same is true for us as individuals and for the church. If we all pull in our own personal preference direction with a thousand kilonewtons of thrust, it will not go well. The only way for an individual in Christ or a church to function is if we all die to self and submit to his way. 
Now, I'm able to say that conveniently there's not some major announcement this week that I'm saying y'all need to be able to get behind that. But in general, in general, and so how should we be living worthily of the gospel? One way is by walking in selfless humility. And that should be the goal of every Christian. And if you're not perfect there, that's okay. That means you're this side of eternity. You're still a work in progress like all of us. And there's room for us to grow. But secondly, selfless humility was modeled in Christ. He is not asking us to do something that he was unwilling to do himself and to a much greater degree than we ever will. Now usually when you get to the end of a sermon, you try to apply it to someone's life. I joked around that there's no major announcement or anything this week, and that's a good thing. That's true. But one thing I do want to do this morning to end things differently is to take some time in prayer. And not just prayer to close the service, but I want us to all take time to pray for two things. And I'm going to pray for them as well in just a moment. But I want us to all take some time in reflective prayer and pray, God, would you reveal to me if there's any area where I'm not walking in selfish humility and I'm living for selfishness? And secondly, God, would you help me to repent and change my ways? And I'm saying let's do this together because we want to make Calvary a house of prayer, but we're all a work in progress. And so I encourage you, right where you're at, if you're with your family, you can pray with them. If you're not, you've got to pray by yourself, but you're in fellowship with the Spirit in that moment. But take some time to pray, and then in a moment, I'll close us out. About 30 seconds. Our God and our Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and Lord, we confess that we are all a work in progress, Lord Jesus, and that we all have areas where we are probably walking in selfishness, Lord Jesus, and that we could walk in selfless humility. And yet, Lord, I pray that it wouldn't be from other people nitpicking our lives and pointing out, saying, you're imperfect here, there, or other but rather that by your spirit that you would convict myself and every other believer here, Lord, of any area where we are walking in selfishness, Lord Jesus, rather in selfless humility. And Father God, I pray that you would also help us, Lord, to change, that people might look at us as believers in Jesus and realize that, yes, we have opportunity to lobby for our own opinion, to trust in our own wisdom and live life our own way, but it's always better to be able to submit to you and to seek your way and to live for you because, Lord, there's only one Lord of the church. It's not Jason, it's Jesus. And, Lord, this is your church, and, Lord, I pray that you would be the one to guide it, that you would be the one to grow us, to mature us, 
to convict us and to be gracious to us, Lord Jesus, because it's only by your grace that we're able to function. And we thank you for your love, Lord. And God, I pray lastly, Lord, if there's anybody out there, Lord Jesus, who hasn't come to know you in a personal relationship, Lord, that they would reach out because as believers, as Christians, we don't have it all together. We're seeking your help as we live. But it's by your help that we're able to function. And so I pray, Father, that they would reach out or that they might pray to receive you this day. Because, Lord, it's only by your grace that we live and move and have our being. In God's name we pray. Amen and amen.